Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. everybody. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I'm so thrilled to be joined today by a friend of mine, Charlene Lee, who you, you probably already know, but I'll remind you in case you need it. She's currently the Chief Research Officer, newly the Chief Research Officer at PA Consulting. She is famously, of course, the founder of Altimeter Group, as well as the New York Times bestselling author, of six, she's got six different books she's authored on leadership and innovation, including most recently The Disruption Mindset, The Engaged Leader, Open Leadership, and Groundswell. And I, I've probably missed a couple, but a pro prolific author. She also speaks all over the world. Her books have been translated into multiple languages. Please join me in welcoming Charlene Leith. Charlene, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And anything you want to add, uh, and maybe just let folks know if they're not familiar with the company that you're, you're newly with as a chief research officer, uh, what you're doing now, and anything else by way of introduction you'd like to add. Sure. PA Consulting is a global consulting firm, very fo much focused on end-to-end -end innovation and transformation. And one of the things I, reasons I joined them is that one of their big values and purpose is to uh, use the power of ingenuity to create uh, and maximize the potential of human, uh, to maximize human potential. And so that has so many connotations and it allows me to look beyond the traditional areas I've looked at, especially around digital transformation or social media, to look at how do we transform our world? How do we uh, tackle these wicked problems like sustainability and climate change? Uh, the fact that stakeholders and employees uh, need to have a greater say uh, in the relationship with their employers, supply chain partnerships, stakeholder capitalism, so many things that need to be addressed. So I can look at those big, big topics, these wicked problems, and try to find some answers to them. I love it. One of the things I love about you, Charlene, is you're always working on, not just like telling businesses how to make more money, but you're always working on something that has kind of an element of being profound and, and really, really ambitious. And I think that's great. I love to, love to track all the different interesting angles you take on so many of the challenges we face in our world and our businesses. Yes, um, so it's going to be really fun. I don't know what the answer is going to be, but that's the exciting part of it. Well, and that's, that's because you're a researcher at heart, right? If we knew what the answer <laughs> was, then we really wouldn't be honest researchers, right? You've got to go out there with that kind of open mind and curiosity. So, so what we're going to do on today's podcast is also, it's not only exciting that we have Charlene with us, but we have an amazing agenda because Charlene could talk about so many different topics, but we have an exclusive here today on the podcast because Charlene is working on a new book, which I don't know if she's told anybody about other than her friends. And today she's going to tell us about this fascinating new area that she's working on. And we're going to have an opportunity to have a conversation about some of the, some of the topics that she's still thinking about and percolating about. And I would add, and Charlene, if you're okay with this, those listening have the opportunity to comment and add your thoughts. And you may be able to also suggest an angle on this topic that Charlene's working on that she's still figuring out and working on. So she's going to share with us right in the middle of her latest thinking on the topic she's working on. Yeah, and I really wanted to do this with you, Howard, and your, with your audience, because you are thinking about this, you're living this every single day. And our preliminary conversations, I'm like, okay, we've got a lot to discuss here. I've got a lot to learn from you all. Um, so should I just dive into it? Yeah, please, to describe everybody the, the ba major idea, the thesis behind the new book you're working on. 
Sure. The book is about um, wise leadership and wise organizations. And what I've come across is there seem to be so many contradictions, especially when you're trying to create change. You know, you've, you, how do we balance order? Because we always strive for things to be constant, to be in order. That's what leaders do. They put processes in place, put structures in place. And yet at the same time, you need to be changing them, constantly transforming them. And the one thing that we've learned is that change is perpetual. There is no order, but yet you need order. So how do you balance order and change? How do you be strong and show up as this confident leader with a strong vision of where you want to go, and yet still remain vulnerable and humble to the fact that you don't have all the answers? How do you pursue excellence but not fall prey to being perfect? How do you stay focused and determined and um, frankly stubborn that you're on the right path? And this is something, Howard, you and I talked about. Yeah. And when do you know when it's time to pivot? How do you live with all these contradictions? And I believe that we need to be wise. We need to be wise as leaders and as organizations. And my, my research is to say, can we accelerate that process? Can we not have to work for 20 or 40 years before we are wise? Is there a way that we can absorb that wisdom, um, teach it to each other, experience it, create the experiences, uh, put structures in place to create wisdom of organizations so we don't fall prey to these black and white and instead can live in this world of gray and be able to use our wisdom to answer these questions. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's sort of the, the antidote or the counter to this theme we see today, living in a soundbite world, living in a meme world, where you know, people love to just uh, re reduce things to these like, simple ideas or simple phrases, or, or like you say, leadership, the simple piece of advice, you know, persist with your vision, don't let anyone tell you otherwise, when in fact, we're also at the same time given advice, just like you said, to pivot and change as needed. And wait a minute, these things are, these are not the same thing, you know, we're being given contradictory advice. And, and, and what I love about what you just said, and, and you mentioned this to me earlier, is just this idea of, if we want to accelerate wisdom, First, we have to figure out what the heck wisdom even is, because it seems like kind of an abstract idea. And you said something that just really stuck with me, which is that wisdom is dealing with the contradictions. You know, the wise person is someone who doesn't have to resolve the contradiction, but recognize that there's actually this dialectic of so many things that we have to, we can't resolve it, we have to figure it out. And um, I think that's a really profound idea and one that I'd never heard until you started to tell me about, about this book. Right. It, and um, what I have found is, is over my working years, living years, is that, you know, you, you figure out along the way that it isn't simple. Um, I, 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 actually, I put it a different way. It isn't easy, but it can be quite simple, which is that you accept that the contradictions exist. You don't try to resolve them. And instead, you find ways for them to live together in harmony with each other. That you need a little bit of both. And how do you figure out what that harmony looks like for you and for your team? Yeah, uh, I, no. I, yeah, I, I like to say that there is no such thing as balance. There's harmony. Because balance means you're feeling guilty every single minute that you don't have everything under control. <laughs> Instead, you give up the need to be in control. You accept it. You surrender to it, even. The idea of surrendering, even as a leader, seems so contradictory. Like, why should you accept the way that things are? It's only when you accept that things that, the, that this is the way things are that you can begin to change it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It may seem like a weird uh, analogy, but I, I wrote a piece recently around, because it was around Easter and Passover, about leadership lessons from the Bible. 
And, you know, one of the things that I, you see over and over in the Bible is, and it's hard to get religious on anybody, but, you know, like God is constantly trying to get the people in the Bible to do things. And so often they're not listening. They don't do what, you know, God, the Jewish people are, you know, they're making the golden calf and they're, you know, they're doing, they're, they're doing the opposite of what they're being told to do. And, and the leadership lesson I love to take from that is just that, like, you know, here's the Bible telling you, even God can't get people to do what he tells them to do. So if you're a CEO, what hope do you have? You have to find another way than to believe that you just tell people and they will do it because, I mean, it's just not true. Yeah, I was just working with a leadership team and they were having some issues around accountability. And I said, it's not delegation that creates accountability. It's ownership that does. It's only when people truly believe that they have ownership over the decisions, they have all the information, they have all the tools, they have the skills, and they have the wisdom to apply all of these things towards the problem. And so your job as, as a leader isn't to say, this is how you do it, I'm gonna give you this job. It's like, this is the outcome I want. And then to step back and let them flail with it a little bit, try a lot of things and fail. But along the way to say, encouraging them, saying, this is the outcome. I know you can do this. I'm happy to hear to support you. But in the end, it's you who has to own this. Because otherwise, they won't own it. And they just kick it right back up to you. Yeah. And how many leaders start down that path, but then when they see their team going, one day they go, oh, but don't go that way. That's not the right way. Find another way. And then, oh, no, no, wait. I don't think that's the right answer either. It's, it's very tempting, you know, especially if you think you know. And I think one of the challenges of leadership is usually – the people who become empowered leaders or the CEO or whatever else, they're usually very confident people. It's kind of like a key thing. If you don't exude confidence, people usually won't follow you. And yet sometimes that confidence, I think, is also the thing that leads leaders. And I'm sure that I am as much of an example of this as anybody. Then think, you know, and you want to save your people from making a mistake. You know? yeah. and, and as you point out, that can be counterproductive. But I think we have a misplaced definition of confidence. Mm. And we think confidence is knowing that this is the right direction and we're gonna be right. I think confidence is actually saying, no matter what the outcome is, I'm gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. That's where deep underlying confidence comes from, that you can walk into a situation, not know what the outcome is gonna be, and you'll be okay. So I hope it's in this direction. I believe this is the right direction, but that's different than being confident because it could be misplaced confidence if it doesn't turn out that way and you're not gonna be okay, right? So you take all the time, all the preparation to prepare yourself and your team to know that whatever the outcome, whatever it's going to be, we're gonna be okay. Yeah, yeah I think that's so true. And uh, to the point you made earlier about alignment and getting people to really take ownership over things and feel like it's their, their thing that they're owning, I think that's so, so key. You know. Like when we do a lot of workshops, you know, my company and so often we'll have like uh, someone like a CXO of some sort come and say, I want you to do a workshop. And what I need you to do is get everyone aligned around this solution. You know, I've got the answer and you need to do a workshop and get everyone essentially aligned, you know, to, to, to buy into this thing, you know. And I'm always like, yeah, you know, this is going to be tough to do it exactly that way because the nature of a workshop is about giving people the opportunity to explore and all that. You know, I said, how would you feel if they actually wound up with a solution that was even better, you know, than the one that you are trying to get everyone, would that be okay? Or would that be like absolute failure of the workshop? You know, usually they're like, oh, well maybe, but I'm not sure that they're likely to come up with something better. But then what I always try to point out, and I don't know that I'm always successful, is that the truth is if they come up with something that, if, if there even were a measure 
that is only 70% as good, like in an absolute goodness, is only 70% as good an idea, but they're all aligned about it, aligned around it, instead of the theoretical supposed 100% correct idea that they're not aligned around, you're a hundred times better off with the 70% yeah. right idea that people really believe that they have ownership out over and are, are ready to like go and do with custom. Yeah, I, I, when it comes to alignment, especially I work with so many companies who are going through a transformation and getting everybody lined up is one of the most difficult things because people are like, but that's not the way we've done things. The things that we've done in the past always worked. Why do we have to change it? Or I'm really comfortable with this. I don't know what this means for me. This seems really risky. And we've heard all of these things along the way. And so I like to ask leaders, can your employees answer these three questions? Because if they can, then you know you have alignment. So the first question is, who are your future customers? Not just who your current customers. And I get this little scoff from from CEOs and marketing directors. We don't even know who our current customers are, let alone our future customers. But the, the way that you have a strategy for the future is to say, where are we going? And where are your customers going? And how are we going to get there? So the first question is, who are our future customers? Are we completely aligned in agreement about that? Second is, what's our strategy going to be to get to that point? How are we going to get where we are today to where we want to be in the future? And the third is the most important part. What is my part? What is my role in making that strategy come true? What piece of it am I going to have? What impact am I going to have? And everybody should be able to answer those three questions. And if you can't, if you don't have confidence that your every single employee can answer those three questions, then that's what you have to focus on. One of those three things. Is it clear where you're heading? Uh, is it clear what the strategy is, what we will do, what we won't do? And is it clear to each person what role they have, what impact they have? I, I remember this um, one reporter who was walking around NASA during the days when they were putting uh, a, a Apollo on, on the moon, putting a man on the moon. And this one reporter walked up to a janitor and said to the janitor, so what's your job here at NASA? And he goes, ma'am, I'm putting a man on the moon. So putting a man on the moon was the mission and every single person felt it, even down to the person who was keeping the place clean. They saw that as part of their impact, and they never lost sight of that. And can we instill that kind of commitment, ownership in, in the ranks of our employees? That's, that's what our goal is, and that's our job as leaders. And, and uh, I dare say most big brands probably would get a zero out of three if they went around and checked with most of their employees. Even those that are fairly successful, but they're, they're, the idea that people really know where the company's going and who their future customer is and what their role is, I think it, it, that it's, a, it, it's, a, it's ambitious for most companies today. Are there some that you'd point to as an example and say, NASA being one, but any other like current examples that strike you that, sh that companies should emulate? And also, how do you get there if you're nowhere near there? Yes, um, one of my favorite examples is Jeff Weiner, And I've talked and written about what he did as a CEO. He's not the chairman of LinkedIn, uh, but when he was actively involved in the CEO role, every meeting, he would walk in and say, hey, everyone, if it was an external meeting, because I'm Jeff Weiner, CEO of LinkedIn. And he says, our mission is to connect the world's professionals. And the ways we do that are, and he would talk about either a key part of their strategy, some of their values, some of the missions. So he would say, you know, one of our key values is to make members first. And he'd take a little bit, a minute to talk about that. And he would do this in every single meeting. And you can imagine employees were kind of rolling their eyes. Here goes Jeff again. 
And so one of them came up to him and said, you know, Jeff, you do this in every meeting? He goes, yes, I do. And he goes, when are you going to stop doing it? And he said, I will stop doing it when people stop looking surprised. And we as leaders believe that we say things once and people hear it, and we know they don't. It's like your analogy of God telling people, nobody listens to him, it's God, it's God speaking here, it's the CEO speaking, and people don't hear it. They, they need to hear it over and over again. And as we as leaders don't focus on those three questions all the time. We have to be talking about those three things all the time. And with each other as a leadership team to make sure that we're aligned with each other. Are we all clear that this is what our future customer looks like? Are we all clear on what the strategy is? I mean, crystal clear what we want as the outcomes. And is it clear what each of our responsibilities are, that we are owning this part of the strategy? Is it absolutely clear? Because if it's not, then we need to clear. We need to clear with yeah. each other. We need to ask and clarify this. Each person has that agency to be able to ask, like, I don't understand. Please explain it to me because I need to know so that I can do my job and contribute. Yeah. You know, it makes me think as particularly when that when that vision is a departure, a significant departure. You've written a lot, of course, about disruption and such from where the company historically has been that you have another one of those contradictions, I think, which is that kind of sense of identity, heritage and like this is who we are versus who we need to be in order to be successful going forward. And uh, someone both know Tony Robbins, one of his um, quotes that I like very much is he often says the single force in the human, the, the single strongest force in the human personality is the need to stay consistent with your own identity. This idea that this is who we are and you know, we're not this other thing. And so I think that's even for leaders, even for CEOs to actually warm up to this idea that I need to be expressing this vision of where we need to go if it's, you know, little incremental changes, you know, we want to increase stock performance. Sure, no one's going to disagree with that. But if it sounds like a very different kind of customer, if it sounds like a very different kind of business, then I think that's another one of those those uh, seeming contradictions of you want to stay, stay, stay who you are, keep with your identity, but you also need to change. Yeah, it's, it's for example, um, car companies moving away from being a car company to being a mobility enabler. What do we do? What's our core mission? Is it to build cars? Or is it enable people to get to where they need to be? In whichever way that is. And that relationship of who we have with our customers, they trust us to get them to the places where they can, they want to go, to give them that freedom, to give them the opportunities to be able to move from one place to the other. We enable that. So what's to limit us from saying it's a car, to a bike, to rental cars, to self-driving cars, to who knows what else is out there? But it's the area of mobility. And so it's redefining what your identity is. And that can, be, that can be really challenging for people who are very, very tied to the old way of being. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I want to ask you about, I'm curious, I know at heart your, your focus is research and finding answers through research. This topic that you're working on seems so almost like such a profound idea. How do you research something like this? Is it mostly <laughs> through case studies or is there a way to crunch the numbers on it or, or how do you go about that? Yes, I, well, I believe there are two types of research. There are the qualitative interviews that you do and then mm -hmm. from that you can then do surveys. I believe that this is something you can actually measure because there are lots of leadership studies that don't look at things as clear cut A or B, one thing is good or the other. In both of these areas, both areas can be really strong. And it's not to say that you should be one or the other, it should be both. You're comfortable with both. And so 
your area map of, you can imagine it's, it's scaling all over the place, but your area map should be as full as possible, that you can live in both of these areas in full contradiction with each other. Mm. So that's the real challenge, is to develop and stretch your leadership capacity. So I think in the beginning, it's, it's good to start with absolutes because as a brand new leader, you have no clue what you're doing. Remember the first time we were leading, we're like, okay, we're in a leadership role. I'm going to fake it until I make it. Honestly, that's what we do in the beginning. We don't provide training to people. We don't provide anything other than and people. The reason people get promoted is because they did their individual contributor job really well, not because they were capable of managing people. And I do believe that to truly develop wise leadership, you need to be thinking about developing leadership at that individual contributor level, because all the things I talked about, they don't require that people report to you. They don't require that you have a budget. You can practice every single one of these skills right from the very beginning when you're in high school and junior high. So for us to apply these ideas of leadership in all aspects of our lives, because they all contribute to our understanding of these contradictions, to live them in a better way, is, is a really important thing. You know, just even the idea of perfection, that you aim for straight A's, versus excellence. What does that look like in the educational process? How are we encouraging that curiosity, that risk-taking, that um, experimentation, and yet at the same time, we expect people to get straight A's to get into various schools. So how do we use that information to cultivate leadership and look for those potential budding leaders early in their careers, even before they start at work, just when they're in high school and college? so that we can nurture that and, and, and really support that. Yeah. You know, it makes me wonder, are there any existing personality inventories like Myers-Briggs or a DISC profile that, that, that come to get to some of these issues? Which, you know, once you start to define wisdom in the sense of being able to thrive within contradiction, I wonder if there are any existing personality measures that actually can help can help detect them. Well, I do like Myers-Briggs because it has that kind of stretching in both directions, with extrovert, introvert, you know, it's insane versus intuitive, etc. So it's not to say one is better, it's just like this is the way you are. And it, it's something like that, but instead of giving you a number like one way or direction or the other, it says, can you do both? So again, if people out there in your audience have come across any of these development tools or assessment tools, I would love to learn about them. Um, and again, this is where research really helps. I'm not saying that I'll be able to come up with the ultimate measure, but I do believe that something like this is out there. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there are some models out there, what are called masculine forms of leadership and feminine forms of leadership. And that has always bothered me because why do we put certain characteristics with others? And we know that um, if a man cries, he's seen as strong. When a woman cries, she's seen as weak. And how do we remove these stigmas or you know, potential bonuses um, away from gender, away from ethnicity and race, and just understand that these are human ways of being. And um, so a, a lot of people would say that the, th the ways that I think about leadership, um, very similar to what Brene Brown talks about, how you have to be strong in order to be vulnerable, how vulnerability is a huge strength. Uh, and people can look at that and just point to that and say, like, you know, that's a feminine form of leadership. I'm a man. I don't have to do that. And like, no, this is about um, seeing people as humans. It's about being human with each other, having relationships, because it's something that we all crave. 
So this is moving out of this very traditional one-size-fits-all form of leadership that we've seen exemplified now for 100 years, hundreds and hundreds of years, into a form of leadership that is much more human because it's frankly the way that we all want to be working and seeing. Um, I don't think anybody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to fall prey to a charismatic leader who does not take into account how they're thinking and feeling about things. It's great if you're aligned, but if you're just a little bit iota out of step with that leader, then it's miserable. You don't feel like you want to be there at all. And you know, what are you truly contributing to move things forward? So I, I keep going back to, to draw, to build truly strong, wise organizations, wise leaders. You need to take into account all of these things and to be able to do it at scale. You know, another angle of this idea of dealing with these contradictory feelings or contradictory goals um, as a definition of wisdom is it makes me think of something I read a long time ago that stuck with me. There's a book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but, you know, it's a, essentially a personal productivity book. But And I've, I've forgotten the vast majority of it. I probably read it 20 years ago. But I remember one thing he said, which was he said the definition of stress is conflicting obligations. You know, you feel like I should be doing my work right now, but I also need to be spending time with my kids. Or, you know, I should, whatever, you know, the, this feeling of stress is so much about just this feeling of, like, I, I'm, I'm conflicted between two different things. And, and of course, a lot of what he was talking about was how you make a to-do list and you prioritize, and therefore you can always feel good about, I'm doing this one thing right now, and I don't need to be stressed that I'm not doing something else. I've sort of made the decision. So that's, that's the context that he was talking about it. But when I think about what you're describing, I think about the reality that I think you've so correctly put your finger on, but which I'd never really thought about in this way before, which is that leaders are constantly having to operate within these conflicting goals, conflicting priorities, conflicting recommendations. And if you can't resolve them, then potentially you wind up under David Allen's definition of stress. You know, you just feel like you can't win. I'm supposed to be doing A, but I'm also supposed to be doing B. And of course, we know from lots of different sources that people who feel under stress, those are probably not your highest performers. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, you have to be able to be essentially relaxed, I think, in order to be able to do your job well, in order to be productive. And so maybe one other angle of this, I'm curious what you think of this, but it's like those that, are, those that struggle with the contradictions may experience more just emotional stress reducing their performance. Those that are able to just live with the contradictions and not feel that stress, that has the, the effect of making them a better leader, probably for many reasons, but one of them is simply they're not experiencing that stress, and which would be a performance reducer. Right. I, I do believe that it's, it, it's never good to be stressed. It's a good thing to be stretched, and knowing the mm. difference is key. It, it's something I heard from my middle school principal from my kids' school. I'm like, that is brilliant. You know, we want to stretch people, but you don't want to stress them out. And knowing where that fine line is crossed is really important. And, and so to your point about stress, and it's, and it's about this, this conflict that you can't resolve things. It's absolutely, I mean, I love David Allen's work. I live it every day. I have my top three priorities, and I always start with my day with a frog. Uh, Mark Twain had a great um, quote. Um, if you eat a frog every morning, then the rest of the day is easy. So I try to eat my frog first. I have it at the top of my list. This is the frog. Eat this frog first. Makes you want to ask, what was today's frog? Um, it's reading a draft of this one huge long research report that we're publishing in a few weeks. 
It was like the last thing I wanted to do. I just came back from vacation today, and the last thing I wanted to do was to sit down and read this really long draft and edit it and comment on it. It was like, ugh, I ate the frog. Because now the rest of the day, I'm like, I'm done. I can like focus on the other things that I want to do, like talking to you. Um, but now that's done. And um, so, yeah, we all have our frogs. Just eat the darn frog. Um, but the, You're the, making me remember I have a, a giant... Uh, contract, a client contract that they sent me, one of those 30-page contracts I've been meaning to review for the last week and a half. So that's my frog for tomorrow. Eat <laughs> the frog. Up, Eat that frog, Howard. All the legalese in that darn contract. <laughs> yes. You get yourself pumped, do a couple of jumping jacks, and eat that frog. That's how I do it. The, um, but when I, when I think about the stress, early on in my career, um, this woman came to, it was, she was speaking to a bunch of women talking about work-life balance. And, and I didn't have kids then. I think I'd just gotten married. And she said something really profound to me. She goes, go and work your first shift. You know, go to work, do your thing. Come home and work your second shift. You know, work with your family, work on yourself, with your friends, that's the second shift. But do not work the third shift, which is where you feel guilty for not having done enough on the first and second shift. Do not work the third shift. Because if you have done your best in your first and second shifts, that's all people can ask of you. That's all you can ask of yourself. And this is where that whole idea of balance and harmony is so important to me. People say, how do I achieve balance? And I just don't think it's possible. What I have dealt with and the way I get through my daily life is I know that I am making a series of less than optimal compromises on everything. Less than optimal compromises. There is no optimal compromise when it comes to this. And we as leaders are are asked to make endless amounts of decisions of compromises, because we never have enough people. We never have enough budget. We never have enough time. So we have to make choices because no one else will. We step into that board and make these tough choices. That's what we do every single day. Big and small choices, big and small decisions under less than optimal circumstances. And yet we lead as if we can actually create optimal circumstances that we can be 100% sure that we have all the information so that we can make that decision. And as a result, we just keep putting things off. We don't make these decisions that are really hard, that are contradictory. And I kept coming back to like, why don't we do this? And it's because we lack the confidence again, it all ties back together, that no matter what the outcome, we're gonna be okay because we haven't prepared ourselves for the downside, for the contingency plans. What if this doesn't work? Of course it's going to work. And we won't go forward until we're 100% sure. And honestly, are we ever 100% sure? If we need to be 100% sure, we just make tiny little changes instead of these big, huge transformations. And our organizations get stressed because making big, huge leaps and transformations stresses the daylights out of us. So how do we become less stressed as leaders, as people, and as organizations? I do believe it's for us to be wise. Yeah. Well, I love that redefinition of confidence because you're right. If you're, if you're trying to convince yourself you're so confident that you know you've got the right answer, you're probably lying to yourself. And somewhere, somewhere inside, you know you're lying to yourself. And now, as you say, you're stressing yourself out versus just believing. I love it. Just stretch yourself and know that it'll all be okay. You'll figure it out no matter what happens yeah. instead of trying to convince yourself and or your team that you've made the right, right decision. You've made a decision. Congratulate yourself for that. Well, think about the reason why we we always have to be right, right? I I mean, the the reality is 99% of the decisions we make can be reversed. 
you know, it, it, and, and we act as if every decision is irreversible, and they're not. I mean, there are some that are completely irreversible. You know, that that you know, if you you, you do something, then there's no turning back. Right. Uh, but those are very far in between, and the the instead, what we should be acting is okay. I'm going to make this decision. I'm 70% sure, 60% sure, 55% sure this is the right direction. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to be a little bit further. I'll have a different, I'll be in a different place and have a different perspective. And then I can decide, do I want to go back? Do I go forward? Are there new options I could consider? But you're in such a better place than standing where you were back there. But you have to be able to admit, that didn't work out the way I thought it would be. Maybe I should go in a different direction. I was wrong. Given the information that, and now we see more information, we can make a better decision. But we do not have the wisdom to be able to make those kinds of decisions. We do not have the confidence to move forward and do those things. There are so few organizations that basically have erased failure from their vocabulary. They never think that they fail. Instead, they're just saying, I didn't fail, I just learned a lot more. Now we can make even better decisions. I talked to this one leader. He said, yeah, we systematically erased the word failure from our vocabulary because we realized it was just having this huge pullback effect. It was such stigma against it. No matter how we told people, you know, you didn't fail. The project failed. And don't worry about it. We didn't hit our goal, but we're learning. People were like, no, but I still failed. And the leader said, you know, we realized we had to systematically get failure out of our culture. So we never talk about failure, we never fail. And yet we're moving like crazy, moving so fast, and we're not always succeeding, but we are learning and getting closer to where we wanna be. That takes a lot of discipline, a lot of change in the way that you show up, the way that you understand things, the way you even talk and work with each other. Huge amounts of effort don't change. Again, how does our identity change because of that? How do your values and your culture change? And that has to be systematically done. Because if there's even one modicum of the old idea that, wow, that didn't work out, I failed, we failed, this project failed, then that idea, that belief will stick around and fester and grow. So you've got to root out every single example of that old way of thinking, get rid of it and replace it with a new way of thinking. Every single time it shows up, without fail. Oh, we'll continue. Very that. interesting, and goes to the point of the po the power of language mm -hmm. can really. Uh, it's a tool that I think a lot of leaders don't don't think to turn and use. Some phrase like that that's being used around your organization, and just eliminating the words can can have a profound impact on the way people think and on the culture. So that's a that's a great memory. Great point. Yeah, I mean, if there was one organization that had this long-standing value of respect, and it was a value that the founder really believed in and said, you know, we, this is so important that we have respect for each other, that we get along with each other, everyone has something to contribute. And over time, it had morphed into, respect means not challenging each other, it's being nice to each other, being cordial, but we're not gonna challenge each other directly. So if you have an issue with something, you're gonna talk to that person after the meeting, go and schedule one-on-one -on -one with them, have, you know, maybe check with a bunch of people about how they're thinking about this before you're actually bringing it up to them. Because, you know, you don't, you want to have respect for somebody who's senior to you. And this just completely atrophied the company. It could not move forward because the leader would say, well, 
I want to put something out there, but it better be really good because I have the respect of everybody. So it's got to be 100% right. So they wouldn't say anything. And when they did, everybody said, well, they put so much work into it. We can't challenge them. So none of that was happening. And everything just ground to a halt. So they said, we've got to reverse this. We've got to turn it around. So they gave training to every single leader who said, I'm going to begin this meeting. This is what the outcome is going to be. Here are the decisions we want to make. I want to hear from all of you what you think should be done. Because I don't really have a, I have some ideas, but your ideas as a form of respect, I really want to hear because you're the ones closest to the front lines. And so they set the meeting agenda systematically to have that in the agendas, the formal um, forms, outcomes, get feedback from everybody else, and then decide all together what you should do to get those outcomes. And they had to give training to all the leaders. They had to train everybody else how to speak up in the meetings. This is completely new. This is nothing they had done before. But they systematically did this over the course of a year to support the digital transformation. Because they realized that digital transformation was going to be for nothing if they didn't have it also a transformation of the way people worked with each other because you wouldn't have all the benefits of putting all these powerful technologies, creating new products and services for the company, for their customers, if you didn't also have a change in the way that the company worked with each other. Isn't that so interesting about digital transformation? You know, you pull on that thread, sometimes it just starts out by thinking, oh, we just want to give our customers this better experience. And then you realize, well, in order to do it, we have to change the way we operate. We have to change our culture. We have to change our business process. We may have to change our business model. I mean, the technology changes are nothing compared to sometimes those extremely profound changes. I, I wish it were simpler, but you're right so often. So often is so many uh, arms to that octopus that you have to uh, wrestle with. And some of them are deep and challenging, like you say, but uh, that's, a, that's a great example. I love it. Well, I really, I'm realizing that we have actually even overshot a little bit our scheduled time so and of course no no shock that you snap we, you and I start talking we snap our fingers and we think five minutes has gone by and it's more than 30 so um, we have to be wrapping it up even though I know you we could talk about this for for hours but I'm so excited about this book now do you have a working title for the book yet uh, it's something like wise leaders and wise organizations something like that but I really mm -hmm. want to use the word wise in there I, but that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> so I, well, I really I welcome. That's simple, and, and that's what you're talking about. I think that's I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, everybody, it's too early to go to Amazon, search for it, and pre-order it. <laughs> Not quite time for that yet, but um, but you've gotten an early look at uh, at the next uh, the next thought leadership coming from Charlene Lee. So, Charlene, thank you so much for that. If people want to learn more, I know they can't order this this book yet, but if they want to learn more about you, your work, your the company you're with now your other thought leadership, your other books, where's the best place for them to go? Where, where would you send them? Uh, of course, there's always my website, charlinelee.com. But I, a lot of my content and latest thinking is appearing on LinkedIn. I have a weekly newsletter there. And I also have a bi-weekly newsletter, um, email newsletter coming from me directly that just highlights all the work that I'm doing and puts it all in one place. Great. And that's all. They can get to that all at charlinelee.com. That's correct. Great. Well, we'll make sure that that uh, URL is in the show notes. So, uh, that will be, and I recommend, I've subscribed to both of Charlene's uh, newsletters. I absolutely, and it's different content. So you want both, both the LinkedIn newsletter and the email newsletter. Definitely recommend you, uh, you subscribe to both. And Charlene, thank you so much for being here. This has been really, really great. And thanks on behalf of the audience for giving us a sneak preview on the things that you're thinking about right now. Thank you so much for having me, Howard. 
course. And uh, thanks as always to all of you for watching and listening to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, keep transforming. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.